In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Father in heaven, we pray now as we look to your word that you would give us grace to understand. I pray, Lord, that I would be able to communicate in a way that is clear, but Lord, also in a way that is convicting. And so in Jesus' name, Lord, we would ask that you would move us away from our pride and arrogance and cause us to see the Lord Jesus Christ and cause us, Lord, to want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, humble and not arrogant. Lord, please use this story from the book of Judges to influence us and to change us and to give us life, for your word indeed gives life. Help us now, Lord, please, to understand you through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We are studying the book of Judges. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 7 and 8. We're going to conclude the section on Gideon. Please remember that as we study the book of Judges, it is a book which is repetitive. We see the reoccurring cycle of sin and suffering, followed by supplication, a savior, solace, and then sin again, so on and so forth. And today we see that cycle in play. We also need to note that the book of Judges is rough. Uh, It is filled with stories of excessive brutality and carnal licentiousness. We are going to see that brutality at play today. The book of Judges is rhetorical. The stories are true, but they are arranged by the author, written as very artful literature. There are word plays and metaphors and imagery. It is a very beautiful piece of literature. And most importantly, the book of Judges is redemptive. Over and over, what we see is God being kind to bad people and forgiving them and restoring them over and over again. And these are all pictures of how God is kind to us through Christ and his gospel. If you would please turn to Judges chapter 7. Remember that in Judges chapter 6, we were introduced to a man by the name of Gideon. Uh, He was a weak and cowardly, oppressed and humble man. And he is met by the Lord Jesus Christ, or as he is described in Judges 6, the angel of the Lord, who comes to him and unexpectedly calls him to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Who were the Midianites? Well, they were descendants of Abraham. After Abraham's wife Sarah died, Abraham married a woman by the name of Keturah, had several children, and one of them was a little boy by the name of Midian. And so the Midianites are descendants from Abraham. By the time we reach Judges chapter 6, they are large in number, and they are vicious. They move from the east to the west across the Jordan River, and they come with their camels, and what they do essentially is show up at harvest time and steal all the Israelite groceries. Through a series of signs and tests, Gideon is convinced to take a leadership role in Israel And so he assembles an army in order to challenge the Midianites, which brings us to chapter 7. And what we're going to do in chapters 7 and 8 is follow this very simple outline. Point number one, the strength of weakness. And point number two, the weakness of strength. Point number one, 
the strength of weakness. Uh, if you get this one point, then you will get everything that I have to say this morning, and that is that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. That is the point. To illustrate this, I want to remind you of what Samuel said to Saul. Samuel was the prophet, and Saul was a king, and Saul had gotten a little bit too big for his britches. He was full of himself, and Samuel rebukes him for his sin, and he reminds him of when he first became king, and he uses this wording in 1 Samuel fifteen seventeen. He says, you were once small in your own eyes, Saul. You were once small in your own eyes, or as the King James puts it, when thou wast little in thine own sight. Uh, here's the key to pleasing God and being used of God. Step number one is that we need to see ourselves as little and small. And so it is the strength of weakness. Now Gideon has already demonstrated in chapter 6 that he is weak. When we find him, he is threshing wheat in a wine press so as not to be seen by the Midianites. Uh, he tells Jesus of his inadequacies and the inadequacies of his family. Uh, he tears down the idols of his father at night because he is fearful to do it during the day. He repeatedly needs signs, uh, two signs with a fleece, one wet and another dry because of his uncertainties. You can accuse Gideon of being a man who has a weak faith, but here's the thing you cannot accuse Gideon of in chapter 6. You cannot accuse him of pride or arrogance. When he looks at himself, he sees a man who is weak and he sees a man that is small. And that is exactly what God is looking for. As we move into chapter 7, God is not only looking for a weak man, but God is looking for a weak, small army in order to fight the Midianites. Listen, please, as I read the first eight verses. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them uh, by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many, not too few, but too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remain. So they've got 32,000 to start, 22,000 of them leave because they are afraid. Is the army now small enough? Well, apparently not. Verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for, for you there. Any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. So watch the people as they drink. If anybody gets down on all fours and they stick their face in the water and they, they just stick their face straight in the water. You need to isolate those people. Uh, likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300. But the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So 
Gideon doesn't know which group is going to be what at this point. He knows that he is going up against 135,000 uh, Midianites plus their camels. And he sees the people uh, getting down in the water, and he sees only 300 of them lapping with their hands. He sees the remainder of the people sticking their face straight in the water. Surely at this point, Gideon thinks, hmm, those 300 are going to go home. He was wrong. The Lord sets aside the 300 people to be Gideon's army. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So it's down to Gideon plus 300 men. Why is the Lord reducing the army to such a low number? Well, he makes it clear in chapter 7, essentially saying, you are prideful and you are arrogant people who love to take credit for yourself and to rob me of my glory. So I'm going to make a number which is so small that it is impossible, that it is impossible for you to take credit for yourself. Um, think of it. When you have a daydream, and, and that is you're just, you have nothing to think about and you start to think, you end up being the hero of your own daydream. Uh, the reason that this is true is because we like to think of ourselves as strong. We like to think of ourselves as competent. We want others to recognize us in this way. If you have children, they probably have seen Encanto. If they've seen Encanto, then they know who Luisa is. Who is Luisa? Well, she says, I'm the strong one. I'm not nervous. I'm as tough as the crust of the earth is. I move mountains. I move churches. I glow because I know what my worth is. I don't ask how hard the work is. Got a rough, indestructible surface. That is Louisa. She, on the surface, wants to come across as though she has it all together and that she is strong. We are no different than she is. But in reality, we are not strong, but we love to think of ourselves as strong. And so when we do something well uh, and we say something well and others recognize that, well, we perceive those people to be perceptive and we perceive those people to be discerning. Why? Because we want to be strong and we want other people to think that we are strong. We do not want people to think that we are weak. And so before I get into explaining the text, what I want you to do is I want you to be wrestling within your own mind and be honest with yourself about your personal pursuit of strength and competence and ability and the temptation that you have to take credit for yourself and not bring glory to God. Now, please remember, point number one is the strength of weakness. And in chapter one, verses, I'm sorry, in chapter seven, verses one through eight, there is a lot of commentary given to the 22,000 men who left because they were fearful. And, and all sorts of horrible things are written about these men. I don't think that's the point of the story at all. I think that that was just a way to get rid of a lot of people. Uh, I don't think that the story is about them at all. There's even more commentary about how one, if they get down on their knees and they lap up water, they are 
more suited to serve the Lord because they are more vigilant, they are down, they are looking for the enemy rather than sticking their face in the water. I would say, likewise, that is equally ridiculous because the enemy is several miles away. It doesn't have anything to do with how you lap the water. There's nothing morally wrong with sticking your face in the water. There's nothing wrong with lapping it up. There's no difference. It just was making a distinction. And so the point is, regardless of how it happened, what God needed to do was to reduce his army to a ridiculously low number. Now, why does God do this? He does it because he knows that we like to take credit. And so what he does is he removes the temptation to take credit from the children of Israel by reducing their army by over 99%. When you think about yourself and your effectiveness in the kingdom of God, there may be many reasons why you are not effective in serving the Lord and why you don't see much fruit from your ministry. Let me suggest perhaps one of those things. Perhaps one of the reasons why God isn't using you greatly is because you are too strong, too strong in your own eyes, too smart, too educated, too wise, too experienced, too confident, too full of yourself. There's nothing wrong with being strong or being, being competent or being wise. But when we are strong or competent or wise and we give ourselves credit for our own strength or wisdom, then God cannot use us. The story is told of a pastor who preached a wonderful sermon one time. He went to the door to shake hands with the congregants. And as one lady was leaving, she shook hands with him and said, Pastor, that was a wonderful sermon. To which the pastor said, I know, the devil already told me. You see, with a number like 300 and a leader like Gideon, God had his people exactly where he wanted them, weak and small. God is pleased with humility. Once again, he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud, James 4, 6. Remember, point number one is the strength of weakness. And Gideon's frailty is is shown in that he is now down to 300 men. His frailty is further seen in verses 9 through 15, where God gives him yet another sign, as if God hasn't given him enough signs already. Look at what it says in verses 9 through 15. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, and he certainly was afraid, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost or the outskirts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. There's the beautiful rhetoric of the book of Judges, just this vision of, of, of how many people and how many camels were there. And when Gideon came, behold, or I paint a picture in your mind's eye, A man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. 
And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now put yourself in the sandals of Gideon. You've just been reduced to 300. God says, I'm going to give you the victory. But I know you don't believe me. Let me prove it to you. Take your assistant, go to the outskirts of the camp, and just listen to what you might hear. And Providence happens to lead him outside the tent of these two guys. And one guy says, you know, I'm really having trouble sleeping. And his friend says, what's the problem? He said, I dreamed a dream of a barley cake. <laughs> so, so it come, and, and he tells the whole story. And his friend immediately knows the interpretation. And he says, this is nothing other than Gideon, son of Joash, an Israelite, and God is giving us into their hand. Now, Gideon and his friend are listening to this. What is their response? Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. He literally fell on his face before the Lord, and he returned to the camp of Israel and says, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. All right, if I'm Gideon, I believe it at this point. If I'm one of those 300, I'm not so sure, but they're going to go through with it anyway. But think of how this assurance was given to Gideon and, and, and how much comfort it brought him. He is a weak man, and he needs constant reassuring. And God gives him this assurance through this dream. And I am speculating now. I do not know that this is true. I think that this is true, but I don't have a chapter and verse to prove it. I don't think that this was the only man who was disturbed because of this. I believe that God had put fear into the entire camp. I mean, on the surface, it doesn't make any logical sense that 135,000 soldiers, along with their camels, would be frightened by a tiny army led by a man who had no military experience. But here's the key. God is able to put the fear of God in people, and this is what God does here. And so I think just as Rahab told the spies, we are afraid of you, I think that there was fear in the Midianite camp. Did it make any logical sense? No, but God is able to put the fear of God in people. Now Gideon knows that they are afraid. And, and again, his response is to worship. Whenever God reveals himself, the proper response is to worship and to bow before him in awe. But how is it going to be accomplished? Well, verses 16 through 23 explain the battle itself. Listen as I read these verses. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout. What are we supposed to shout? For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. The reason it says middle watch here is because the Midianites would divide the night into three watches. Later, we're going to see that the Romans divided the night into four watches. But if you're looking at the middle of the middle watch, it's give or take roughly midnight. And what you're having now is the changing of the guard. 
with some people going to sleep because they have been awake, and then some people who have been asleep who are awake but are kind of groggy, he, he does this during the, during the changing of the guard. Uh, it says in the middle of verse 19, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. Uh, they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, a sword for the Lord, Yahweh, and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place. That's really important. Please note that all they did was stand still. They didn't kill anybody. They just stood there. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They, that is the Midianites, cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So chaos breaks out in the camp, and they all start killing one another. And the army fled as far as Bethshita, towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Mehoah, by Tabath. I mispronounced all of those words. One of them I mispronounced purposely. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. All right, so get the picture. My pulpit is the Midianite camp. Gideon comes with his 300 men very quietly, so as not to be heard, and he has a jar. Each man has a jar on top of their lamp, so as not to be seen. A hundred of them come and line up on this side of the Midianite camp. One hundred of them are on this side of the Midianite camp. One hundred of them are on this side of the Midianite camp. Gideon gives the signal. When he gives the signal, they take the jars which would have made some noise. It would have startled the people. They smash the jars. And then, all of a sudden, when the jars are smashed, what you have around you are 300 lights. You don't know how many thousands of people are behind those 300 lights. If you wake up in the middle of the night, there are no lights on. You just look, and you're, you're surrounded by light. Happens to be only 300 men, but... You don't know that. So all you see is light all around you. Then, with their left hand holding the lamp, with their right hand, they take the ram's horn and they blow it, and there's this loud surround sound around the camp. What happens next is extraordinary. The Midianites wake up. They are completely confused. They are in the dark, both literally and figuratively, they pull out their swords, they think they're in the middle of a battle, and they start to fight against one another, and 120,000 of them kill one another. Gideon and his men have not killed anyone. It is an amazing story that God has put them in such disarray, and 120,000 of them die. You know, from time to time, people will come to our church and they will be wolves in sheep's clothing. We do not know who they are when they initially arrive, but Paul told the Ephesian elders it's going to happen, and it happens in every church. There are people, and in fact, I think for the most part, these people do not even know who they themselves are, but they 
come into a church and they look good initially, but then they start to cause problems in the church and they start to disrupt the unity of the church. And so the elders um, pull ourselves aside and say, what are we going to do about this particular situation? And we think of all kinds of ideas as to how we might protect the church and how we might, might, might cause this one not to, to bring damage to the church. And do you know that that for all of our strategizing and all of our planning and all of our praying and everything that we do to try to defeat the wolf in sheep's clothing, do you know more often than not what happens? Everything that we plan to do in order to battle this person, we never have to execute. And the reason that we never have to execute it is because they end up shooting themselves in the foot. They become rash, they do something stupid, and they are exposed for who they are, and we really, I mean, you know this already, but we're just not that clever. It is the Lord that causes these people to self-destruct. It is the Lord himself who protects his church. God will often cause his enemies to be rash and stupid so as to give his people a victory. And God is the one who gives his people the victory. It is clear that God is the one that gives his people the victory. Now imagine if you are one of Gideon's 300 soldiers and a magazine or newspaper in the ancient Near East, a military journal, wants to interview you. They pull you aside and they say, so you are one of Gideon's 300 men. That is correct. That is correct. You you witnessed the whole victory. I saw the whole thing. Well, tell me, sir, how did you do it? The only answer is this. I didn't do it. We didn't do it. God did it. God did it all. In other words, salvation is of the Lord. And therefore, the Lord is not only to receive glory, but he is to receive all the glory. He should receive all the glory. You know, sometimes when you ask people to tell you their testimony, what they will talk about is how they did this or that or how they believed or how they repented or what they did and how they defeated sin and Satan. Friends, do you understand that the only contribution that we make to our salvation is the sin from which we are saved? How did the Lord save you? I didn't make any contribution whatsoever. Well, what about your faith? Well, according to Ephesians chapter 2, that is a gift from God. Well, what about your repentance? Well, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, repentance is a gift that is given from God. Well, what about your choice? What about your decision? Well, Jesus made it really clear. You did not choose me, but I chose you. But what about your perseverance? No, it is he who began a good work in you who will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, what about your works? Ah, Ephesians 2, 9. It is not of works. Well, what then did you do? I did nothing. And that is exactly what Jesus said in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Please listen. As arrogant as it would have been for one of those 300 soldiers to take credit for that victory... It is infinitely more arrogant for you today and more offensive toward God for you today to be proud or to brag or to take credit or to deem yourself better than another because you are saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. 
What do you have that you have not received? The implied answer is nothing, nothing. We are saved by God and by God alone. At least those 300 soldiers were alive. Now, I know the odds of 300 versus 135,000. I know that that is a, that, that, that's an unlikely victory, but, but nevertheless, they were alive. Here's your situation. You weren't even alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. God did it all. And so born again Christians, by definition, should be the most humble people on the planet. We should be in a constant state of demonstrating our humility. And one of the ways that we can demonstrate our humility, not the only way, but one of the ways that we can demonstrate our humility is by singing loudly and enthusiastically to the Lord. Why? Because it is a way to demonstrate how much we love him. And I think that, you know, I mean, I I hear these arguments, well, I don't sing very loud because I don't have a very good voice, or I don't sing very loud because that's really not my personality, or that's not the tradition I come from. I do not think that those are valid excuses. Shout to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all ye lands. A way that you can, and it's not the only way, but a way that you can demonstrate your humility is by singing vigorously to the Lord because he and he alone has saved you. And when we are arrogant, it simply means that we have forgotten who we are and we have forgotten what he has done. Let's continue looking at the humility of Gideon, the strength of weakness. The next section contrasts the humility of Gideon along with the arrogance of Ephraim. Listen as I read chapter 7, verse 24 through 8-3. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim. Stop right there. This is the first time he is asking Ephraim for help. Back in chapter 6, he asked some other tribes for help. Earlier here in chapter 7, he asked some other tribes for help. This is the first time that Ephraim is being called into service by Gideon. So he sends messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Bara and also the Jordan. In other words, cut off their escape route. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Bara and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian. Their names are Orb and Zeb. They killed Orb at the rock of Orb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Stop right there. Please understand that the rock of Orb is called the rock of Orb because Orb is killed there, and the winepress of Zeb is called the winepress of Zeb is because Zeb is killed there. It's, it's not coincidental that these men died at places that were named after them. It's sort of like saying, what are the chances of Lou Gehrig getting Lou Gehrig's disease? It, 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 they get the name because that's what happened there. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Orb and Zeb, literally their heads, to Gideon across the Jordan. So far, so good. They have captured these generals, they have beheaded them, and they bring the heads to Gideon. But they're not bringing the heads to Gideon to say, look at what the Lord has done. They're bringing the heads to Gideon in order to demonstrate their arrogance and pride, and that shows up in the first three verses of chapter 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us? Wait a minute, I haven't done anything to you. 
What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. Can we put this into perspective? God, for seven straight years, the Midianites have been coming in and stealing all of your food. And in one night, 120,000 of them are dead. There is a great victory here, and the only thing that you currently are obsessed with is the fact that you were not asked to participate. What have you... And, 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 and this is just crazy that they are so arrogant. And they accused him fiercely, verse 2. And he said to them, this is Gideon speaking to them in, I believe, what is his greatest act of humility. What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebiezer? Uh, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian or Benzeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Wow. Ephraim feels snubbed. Why didn't you call us from the very start? I mean, look at us. We're obviously competent. We cut off their escape route, and we beheaded these two Midianite princes. We feel underappreciated. We feel disrespected. They are filled with so much pride and so much arrogance that they essentially say, obviously, we should have been in on this from the ground floor. You know, one of the hardest things to do as a pastor is to ask people to do things. Um, because every time you ask someone to do something in the church, you know that that also means that you're not asking someone else. And you're never going to be able to please everyone. And so what you will frequently hear is something like this. Well, you asked him to preach. Why didn't you ask me to preach? You asked them to teach. Why was I not asked to teach? Well, why was I not asked to sing? Why was I not invited to such and such a party? Ephraim, you are so self-consumed. All you care about is getting your name in the paper and not the glory of God. Let me just say this. If the reason why you are here is you so that you can make a name for yourself, you need to do one of two things. You either need to grow up or you need to go to a church where they will baby you. True story. I was told this by one of my friends who is a pastor. Two o'clock in the morning, his phone rings. A man on the other end of the line says this, Pastor, my wife and I have been having trouble sleeping tonight. The reason we can't sleep is we were just wondering why my wife was not asked to be on the worship team. Like, are you stinking kidding me? That, that is not even elementary school. That, that is romper room. That is the nursery. How do you feel when you are not asked to participate? Is it all about you or is it all about the glory of God? And please remember, God is omniscient. 
And so you don't have to be so childish as to voice your hurt feelings in order to be sinfully prideful. It is very possible for you to be snubbed and to put on a happy face and say, I am so happy that you were asked to preach that sermon. You did a really good job. And meanwhile, inside you're saying, that should have been me. That should have been me. You see, a private pity party is a party nonetheless. And so now contrast Ephraim seeking the headlines with the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the night when he was betrayed, got down on the floor and washed his disciples' feet. I think that one of the reasons why God hates arrogance so much is because in his gospel, the the man and the method and the message is nothing but humility. And anything that is not humble is not Christ-like, and I think God hates it. Philippians chapter 2, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. How did he humble himself? He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. The gospel is of first importance. Speaking of humility, I think Gideon's greatest demonstration of humility and self-control was not firing back at the Ephraimites. I mean, are you stinking kidding me? I have been up all night. My job right now is to chase these Midianite kings. And Gideon acts humbly. He doesn't fire back. He he uses this this grape harvest metaphor, and he says to Ephraim, you know what, your leftovers, your gleanings are better than our full harvest. You're right. You've captured and beheaded these two princes. Essentially, he's saying, I see what you're saying. Now, I think you could read into this that Gideon was falsely flattering these guys. If you want to do that, I can sympathize with that position. But you also need to understand that Gideon was wise in what he did because now was not the time to engage these people. I think he was wise and humble to tolerate their pouting because they were so immature and because he had something else to do. Because if he had stopped and engaged the Ephraimites in a debate, he may not have caught up with the two kings that he was chasing. Likewise, I would say to you, sometimes when you are dealing with arrogant people, you just need to smile and look at them and say, whatever, and walk away, rather than to debate them. Because when you debate someone who is prideful, what they are probably going to do, first of all, they're going to enjoy the debate, but they are going to double down and they're going to dig in. And remember that their pride is not just a sign that they are sinful, but their pride is also delusional. They honestly believe with all of their hearts that they are something. And so when you start to argue with someone who thinks that they are something, you're not going to get anywhere. Just walk away, Renee. Left Bank, 1967, although I think the Four Tops did a better version. Nonetheless, just walk away. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, give two back-to-back verses on how we are to deal with fools. The first one, Proverbs 26, 4, says, Answer not, or do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. 
In other words, sometimes you just hear a fool ranting and you just smile and walk away. That's what Gideon does here. On the other hand, there are some times when you do need to speak up. In the next verse, Proverbs 26, 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In other words, sometimes you need to challenge them. And it takes wisdom and humility to know the difference when to do what. Well, I think Gideon made the right choice here, and Ephraim is appeased. Boy, I wish we could go home right now. I wish we could sing our closing song and just leave, and this was the end of the Gideon story. I wish that we had no more information on him. That would be a happy ending, because we have demonstrated repeatedly that there is strength in weakness, or even as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. Hallelujah. That has been demonstrated in the life of Gideon up to this point. When we're poor in spirit, we lean completely on the Lord, and then we are strong. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things in him, in him, through him who strengthens me, the strength of weakness. But sadly, we do need to move on to point number two, and in it, we're going to see that Gideon changed and this is the weakness of strength. We see a humble Gideon in chapters 6, 7, and the beginning of chapter 8, but by the time we get to Judges chapter 4, chapter 8, verse 4, Gideon changes. Let me summarize for you verses 4 through 9. Gideon and his 300 men are pursuing the two kings of the Midianites, Zeba and Zalmunna. They cross over the Jordan River. They are moving from west to east. They first come upon a place called Succoth. They are tired. They are hungry. They are thirsty. They need refreshment. And the people of Succoth turn them down. Then they continue to travel. And they've already traveled about four and a half miles to get to Succoth. They travel another five and a half miles to a place called Peniel. And once again, when they get there, they are rejected. What Gideon says to these two places is, I am going to come back once I have these two kings, and I am going to retaliate. More on that later. In verses 10 through 12, Gideon finally catches up with these two kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, in a place called Karkor, which is about 80 miles to the east of Penuel. He captures them. And what happens in the rest of the chapter shows how Gideon behaves arrogantly. He has really changed, and he starts to throw his weight around as if he is something. Listen as I read verses 13 through 17. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris. He captured a young man of Succoth, and he questioned him. Remember, Succoth is the place that turned him down for refreshment. And this young man that he captured wrote down for him the names of the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. Verse 15, and he came to the men of Succoth and said, behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, I've got the guys here now. You, you weren't going to give me anything to eat previously because I didn't have them. Well, here they are, about whom you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to you and your men who are exhausted? In other words, we don't have proof, so we're not going to give you anything. Verse 16, so what does Gideon do? 
So he took the elders of the city. He had a checklist there, which had been provided by that young man. Took the elders of the city and took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. He tortured these guys. He took briars and he tortured these guys. Verse 17 is worse than verse 16. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. What? I mean, I I agree that what these two cities did was bad, and I agree that they should have been disciplined, but you didn't have to torture their leaders. You, You didn't have to destroy their fortification, and you certainly didn't need to kill the people of that city. Do you not find it ironic that the first people that Gideon kills are Israelites? He never killed one Midianite. He just stood there. He stood there and blew a horn and held a lamp. Now, the first people he kills are his own people. This is excessive brutality. Excessive brutality. I tell you every week that the book of Judges is rhetorical. Uh, Here's an example of that. A commentator by the name of Gregory, Gregory Mobley puts it this way. Gideon, who once threshed wheat now threshes the leaders of Succoth with thorns and briars. Gideon, who once tore down the shrine of Baal, now tears down the fortification tower of Penuel, end quote, and great insight. Who do you think you are, Gideon, to kill your own people because they refuse to feed you? His arrogance continues in verses 18 through 21, where he really now starts to act like a king. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? Now, we didn't learn anything about this previously, but these two kings of Midian killed some men at Tabor. And so they answer, as you are, so were they. In other words, they look like you. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he, Gideon, said to them, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive. I I, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. Okay, this this is subtle, but it is important. One of the ways that kings in the ancient Near East would train their sons to overtake the throne is they would take the sons when they were very young and they would give them a taste for blood. And so if you're going to be the king one day, you're going to need to know how to wipe out the bad guys. And you're not going to start doing that when you take the throne. I'm going to train you to be king. And one of the ways you do that is you take out those that oppose you. And so he wants to mock these two Midianite kings by having them killed by a boy. Well, this backfires on him. But the young man did not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna says, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as a man is, so is his strength. In other words, they knew they were going to die, and they knew that Gideon had just been shamed here by his son. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels, which will turn out, as we will see in the next section, to be a problem. I do not think that he was wrong to have killed these two kings, but I do think that he was acting very arrogantly when he tried to bring his son into it and to mock these kings and to sort of become or act like a king himself. 
goes from bad to worse as we move on in verse 22. Gideon is now back home. He has crossed over the Jordan, and he's back at his home. And it says in verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, in other words, be our king, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. In other words, we need royal succession here. We want you to be the king. When you die, your son gets to be the king, so forth and so on. We want you to be the king. And what Gideon says in verse 23 is one of the most deceptive verses in all the Bible. He says the right thing, but his actions are going to demonstrate that he does not mean what he says. Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord Yahweh will rule over you. Well, all well and good, that is the right thing to say. But what he does in the verses that follow show that that was not his attitude at all. Verse 24, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me an earring from his spoil, for they were golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. They spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of the spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, about 50 pounds, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels. I mean, this he ended up with a lot here. So what does Gideon do with this gift? Here we go. His arrogance, his strength, his self-confidence is seen in verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod. You know what an ephod was? It was a vestment or a vest that was worn by the high priest. And the high priest had to be from the tribe of Levi. It was for the purpose of keeping the Urim and the Thummim in order to discern the will of God. You just didn't make yourself an ephod. It was very narrow. It was to be for the high priest only from the tribe of Levi. Gideon does this. He's completely out of line. And Gideon made an ephod and put it in the city of Orpha, and all Israel whored after it there. In other words, it became an idol. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Look at this beautiful ephod that I've made with these golden earrings and all of the spoil that I've taken from the Midianites. You know what the people of Israel did? They started to worship it. They whored after it. So, verse 28, Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. All well and good, there is good financial prosperity, and there is political rest. However, during these 40 years, Israel is in idolatry, and they are crumbling spiritually. Verse 29, then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now, Gideon had 70 sons. Wait, what? Who, wait, who has 70 sons? Kings. This is the way that the kings would show their prowess. They would get a harem of women and they would start to have lots of children. That's what kings do. He is acting like a king. They say, will you be a king over us? He says, no, I couldn't. And then he ends up having 70 kids. And here's the real kicker. These are his own offspring, for he had many wives, just like kings do, verse 31, and his concubine 
who is in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. We're going to learn about Abimelech in chapter 9. Do you know what the name Abimelech means? It means, it's literally translated, my father is king. I'm not going to be your king, but I'm going to act like a king, and I'm going to name my son, my father is king. I mean, what if we had found some sort of a translation for Parker which says, my father is handsome? (laughs) Nobody would believe it. All right. Verse 32. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died. The good old age was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Orpha of the Abizarites. Good. That's good. But Gideon, do you realize what has been happening while you were judging Israel? They were deteriorating spiritually, the the weakness of strength. Verse 33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bariath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon. We're going to see that in chapter 9 in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Yeah, you end up rich. Yeah, you got all these women and all these kids. Wonderful, great. What have you really accomplished? Nothing. In fact, things have gotten worse. You are in a place of prosperity. You're in a place of power. People will do whatever you say. But you're really a failure. That is the story of Gideon. That is the weakness of strength. That is a sad ending. The weakness of strength. And when we get to chapter 9... I, in fact, I will argue that the, the, the legacy of Gideon with respect to his offspring is arguably the worst in all the Bible. What he actually produces, I think, is worse than any father in all the Bible with Abimelech. Two observations before we close. Here's observation number one. We are weak, but we need to know that we are weak. Yesterday, I was in my backyard. I was working on my sermon. I had my phone with me. I saw some texts were coming in, and some of my friends were texting me saying, the old-timers game is happening right now at City Field. The old Mets are coming back, and it's, it's wonderful, so please record it. Please go look at it. And so I took a break from my sermon prep. I walked in, and I watched a few minutes of it, and it wasn't wonderful. In fact, it was horrible. It was excessively horrible. You, you had these men that I used to watch, that, that, I, that I so adored. They used to be able to run and hit and throw, and now they, like me, are fat, and they can't run. And, 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 and they, would, they would go after a ball, and, and, and it would just be a few feet away from them, and they would try to catch it, but they would fall on their faces, and they would get up, and they would laugh. Isn't that cute? No, it's not cute. No. No, nobody beats time. Nobody beats gravity. Nobody beats entropy. 
We are dust and to dust we shall return. We are weak and the clock is ticking. Job chapter 14 verse one, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. We are weak and the more we deny it, the the more we mask it, the more we try to talk ourselves and others into believing that we are strong, actually the weaker we become. We are like the flower of the grass that fades when the sun comes up. And not only are we weak physically, but we are weak spiritually. We are prone to wander and we are prone to leave the God that we love. We, even those who are most sanctified among us, are filled with sin and filled with pride. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. We are really quick to forget God. We are weak people and you need to know that you are weak. Brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, it is a good thing to know that you are weak. For when you know that you are weak, it is only then you have the possibility of being humble. And being humble does not mean that you have a low self-image. Being humble means that you have an accurate self-image. And being arrogant is not so much being so filled with yourself and, 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 and sinful, although you are filled with yourself and you are sinful, but, but really what arrogance is at its very heart, it is delusional. It's just not true. We are nothing. We are weak. I want to tell you today, it is good to know that you are weak. But you know what's better than knowing that you are weak? Feeling that you are weak, feeling it and actually believing it because you, you know that it is actually possible for someone to have really good theology and to acknowledge that they are weak and to acknowledge that they are frail. Yeah, I'm getting older. Everybody's getting older. And yeah, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I'm a wretch. I know I'm getting older, but all the while just to be filled with pride. You do need to know that you are weak, but you also need to feel that you are weak. To be poor in spirit, to say, I am nothing and I have nothing and I have no means of obtaining anything. It's possible for you to have very good theology about the doctrine of fallen man and at the same time lean on your own understanding and strength. It's very possible to say, no, 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 I, I, don't be silly. I can't be your king. And then to live as though you are the king, making up your own rules. Gideon gave the right answer. If you come to North Shore Baptist Church often enough and you listen even just a little bit, you're going to be able to give the right answer. This man's life was dripping with arrogance. Believe and feel that you are weak. First of all, because you are. But secondly, until you feel yourself intensely as being weak, you will never lean on God. Until you feel yourself as weak, your prayers will either be dry or they will be non-existent. Very simple. Humble people pray, arrogant people do not. Why don't arrogant people pray? They don't have to pray. They have everything that they need. I don't have to read the Bible. I've already read the Bible. I know what it says. I know what I need to do. I don't need the local church. I don't need to be radically committed to the local church. I'm fine as I am. 
Someone who, who calls themselves a Christian, and yet they are on the fringes of the local church, they are a walking contradiction. Friends, you need us. God says you need us. Jesus says you need us. You need the local church to say, I will just stay on the fringes of the church. I'll come every once in a while, or I might come all the time, but I'm not going to get involved in the life of the church. Why? I don't need to. I don't need to. That is arrogant. That is a person who does not feel their need. You know a person who prays and who reads the Bible and who radically commits themselves to the local church? It is a person who is weak and desperate, and they know that they are weak and desperate, and there is strength in weakness. You know the person who has just a casual devotional life? They don't see the need for the local church. This is a person who is strong. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of weakness in strength. Those who are strong in their own eyes, they live carelessly and they live prayerlessly. And they are in danger. You take this King Uzziah. Second Chronicles 26, 16. But when he was strong, but when he was strong... But when he was strong, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. We are weak. Come ye sinners. The only fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. For some of you, the kindest thing that God could do is to jerk the rug right out from under your feet. For until you believe and feel that you are weak, you will never be humble and you will never lean on Christ. And so maybe you're listening right now and you, you want to cry out to God and you want to do something. And, and, and that would be a good thing. God, I don't want you to jerk the rug out from under my feet. God, I'm listening. What do I do? Please, God, grant me repentance. What do I do? First Peter chapter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You either humble yourself or God will. Best that you do it. Best that you do it. You're weak. You need to know that this morning. And point number two, we are weak, number one. Point number two, but he is strong. God defeated the Midianites. He did it by himself. The 300 men, they, they, they just had a front row seat. And he did it so that he would receive the glory. God's purpose, God's goal is his own glory. So as we close, I want you to know that he is worthy and that he's strong and that he has done great things. And we need to start to discipline ourselves not to daydream about our own strength and our own competence, but we need to discipline ourselves to use our daydreams to exalt the king because not only is he worthy, but he loves us and he cares for us. And he shows his love and his strength in the gospel. He sends Jesus to save you. Jesus is strong and Jesus is loving. He paid for our sins upon the cross. Jesus is strong. He conquered the grave. The Holy Spirit is strong. He brought you to life. You see, the beauty of being weak is knowing 
that you are weak, and it leaves you with no place to go except to the one who is strong and mighty, the Lord Almighty. The strength of weakness is this. Weak people are fully dependent upon the only one who is strong, Jesus and his gospel, and the weakness of strength is this, that we will not look to the Lord, but we will perpetually lean on our own understanding as Gideon did in chapter 8, making a mess of his life and all of Israel. And so God today is calling the arrogant to repent in humility and to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Precious Father in heaven, we do want to thank you that this man Gideon was, Lord, used of you greatly. Lord, you use very unusual people. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Thank you, Lord, that we can learn from his arrogance. Oh, may we not follow his example, but may we walk in the steps of Christ who humbled himself to death on a cross. Help us, Lord, to be humble for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.